Thanks, Ron. And good morning. So good to see you all here. Welcome. Hey, go ahead and open up uh, in your Bible with me to Mark chapter 13. That's where we're going to be spending some time together, where as a church, uh, we've been walking through this great book of the Bible just a little bit at a time. And so we just wrapped up chapter 12. So naturally, chapter 13 is where we are. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, it's okay. There should be some on the seats in front of you. And not every seat has one. We just ordered some more. And so uh, you might have to lean a little bit to grab a Bible if you need it. That's okay. Get comfortable with the person next to you. That's a good thing. Uh, we're not going to have the words on the, the screen behind me just because we want to, again, encourage you opening the Bible uh, for yourself and following along. So this is going to be fun today because uh, we wrapped up chapter 12 and it took five weeks to go through that chapter, so a little bit at a time. And today we're starting chapter 13 and we're going to finish chapter 13 in one sermon. All right, it's ambitious, 37 verses, so hope you are ready. Buckle your seatbelt. We got a lot of ground to cover today, but as you go through, you'll kind of see it. It would have been kind of hard to break up because it all fits together. It's kind of one big idea, and so that's why we're tackling it all together. But to make it even more challenging, this is probably the most controversial section of the book of Mark. It's probably the section that's the hardest to interpret, where there's the biggest number of variation in terms of how people understand what Jesus is trying to tell us, because it's talking about prophecy and the end times and the return of Jesus and all kinds of things that are kind of deep waters. You know, some portions of the Bible, you can open it up and just right on the surface, the meaning of it hits you and it's clear what it's talking about. Like, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. You're like, oh, wow. It gets, you know, God loves the world. Or even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. And you're like, oh, just speaks to me right on the surface there. And then there's places like Mark 13. You're like, ah, Jesus, what are you talking about? And you got to put a strong pot of coffee on and really just get to work and kind of dig into the text to see what's going on. And so that's what we have in front of us. So let's get to it. Mark 13, verse 1 says this, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So the passage starts off in an interesting way. Uh, Jesus is leaving the temple. Now remember the setting here. Uh, it's the week of Passover where Jesus and his disciples have been regularly in the city and in the temple. He's been teaching and responding to objections. And this is the final week of his life on earth before the cross. He's just a few days away from his death, a few days away from his resurrection. And so the early days of Jesus' ministry that we saw in the first half of the book of Mark where he's healing people and walking on water and doing all these incredible miracles and feeding the 5,000 and calming the sea, that's all kind of behind us. And now we're looking at the last week of his life as the tension is kind of building between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So things are coming to a head here at the time of Passover. And so this day 
of the week, Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple to head home, and one of them says, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Seems like he's looking at the temple and just marveling at its beauty in awe of the structure that stands before him, this beautiful, amazing thing. The temple in Jerusalem may have been the largest and most significant structure in the ancient world. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. But the temple in Jerusalem of the Jews was larger than that. And so some wonder why wasn't the temple considered one of the ancient wonders of the world. I mean, it was spectacular. It was massive. And one of those places that just leaves you in awe, which we see this disciple doing. Look at these massive stones, these magnificent buildings. I mean, it was the, the center of religious life for the Jews. It was the place where God dwelled and where God ruled his people. And so they looked to the temple as a place of security and stability. I mean, think about even today, if we go to certain holy sites or places that have historic significance that seem kind of larger than life, we can be similarly taken back by them. If you've ever traveled abroad and seen maybe the Eiffel Tower or the Taj Mahal, or I remember when we were in Italy, we went to Florence and we went to the cathedral there, the Duomo, and right as you turn the corner and you're on the street that it's on, it kind of just takes over. It's massive and overwhelming, and you're just kind of in awe of this amazing place. So it seems like that's what's going on for this disciple. He's got, look at this temple. Jeez, this is a magnificent, beautiful place. But all of this makes what Jesus says in verse 2 somewhat troubling, because you notice he says, yeah, you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So he's saying, yeah, it's beautiful, it's important, it's great, but it's, it's going to be destroyed. I mean, this is a word of judgment, a prophecy of coming devastation. Not one stone will be left on top of another because this place is going to be destroyed. And this actually fits in line with what we've seen so far in the book of Mark. If you remember chapter 11, Pastor Lee was preaching on that text where Jesus was in the temple and he was turning over the tables and pronouncing judgment, saying this whole place, this whole thing has become corrupt and not what God intended it to be. And so he visually, by turning over the tables, and you remember he curses the fig tree, it's talking about judgment. Judgment's coming for what this place has become. And so now he's making that explicit. These buildings... These stones are going to be thrown down and destroyed. And so verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, so now him and the disciples are outside of the city looking back from the Mount of Olives at the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? I mean, they're looking and they have these good questions because Jesus is making some pretty bold, significant claims. The destruction of the temple. I mean, this is big stuff. This wouldn't just be like, oh, okay, yeah, that building over there is going to be destroyed. No, no big deal. I mean, this would mean the end of life as they knew it. Like if the temple's gone, the place, God, where you dwell among us, what in the world does that mean for us? It'd be hard for us to picture exactly how significant the temple would be 
to their life. Like imagine like if Washington, D.C. and our church and downtown Benicia and every NFL stadium in the country was like destroyed. You know, like it would be like, whoa, like something big just happened. What does that mean for us? And so, Jesus, when is this going to happen? What will be some signs that will tell us that this is coming? So far, so good? Okay, so what happens now is it gets a little tricky because Jesus is going to respond and he's going to start telling us about what's ahead. And as he's answering their question, he's going to talk about the destruction of the temple. But he's also going to talk about his return and sort of the end of the world and kind of end times type things. And so it forces us to kind of try and interpret what is Jesus talking about, what uh, part of this refers to the destruction of the temple, and what part of this is like some future thing at the end of all time when Jesus returns or some kind of combination of that. And so I just want to say as we start to uh, jump into it, we should carry ourselves with a healthy dose of humility because there are probably uh, a number of different opinions in this room alone, and faithful Christians who love Jesus and uh, believe in the authority of Scripture kind of land on different places on exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And so I just want to say we should carry ourselves with a a good dose of humility. And I'm going to do my best to present what I believe the text is saying and try and make the most sense of all of this. But I know that uh, some of us in here, depending on uh, your background and your time in church previously, uh, some of the things I share might might be a different angle than you've heard before. or might be a bit um, confusing or maybe... Uh, different from what you've previously assumed. And so, let's just do our best to jump in, let the text speak, and see what Jesus is saying. With that, we're going to read a long section here, starting in verse 5. So stay with me. Again, the question, Jesus, when is this going to happen, and what are some signs going to be that this is coming? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. And in verse 6, many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and the father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. He goes on in verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equal again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, 
There he is. Do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. All right. So here's where this gets a little tricky. Because right after the verses we just read, Jesus is going to start talking about his return pretty explicitly about how he's going to come back and what that's going to look like. And so the question for us then is with everything we just read, are these future events that we're looking forward to and that one day uh, will happen right before Jesus comes back? Or are these events that possibly have already been fulfilled in the first century, in the lifetime of the apostles, or maybe some combination of both. And again, I know some of us in here, based on your background, especially if you're familiar with dispensational theology or teaching, talk about dispensations of history, uh, that viewpoint tends to view this as a future thing. And so if that's where you're coming in, then what I'm about to say is going to be a little bit of a shift from that and maybe a bit problematic. So, but stay with me. So I think it makes more sense to see what Jesus is talking about here as events that actually were fulfilled in history, for the most part, in the first century, in the lifetime of the apostles. And here's why I say that. Think of the context of this event. Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he's responding to their question, which was about what? The destruction of the temple. When's that going to happen? Jesus, you're saying judgment's coming on the temple, so when when is this all going to happen? And so his response is in light of that. And see, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. This massive uh, event in world history, the Romans came in, conquered the Jews, sieged Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. That, that happened. That already happened. And so he says, there's going to be all these signs around that event. Many will come claiming to be the Messiah and deceive many and false teachers Of course, we still see this today, and I'm sure it will continue, but in the first century, there were plenty of would-be messiahs who came claiming authority from God after Jesus. So that's taking place. Verse 7 and 8 talks about wars and rumors of war, nations and kingdoms against each other. Certainly, there was wars and fighting and rumors of wars in the first century, especially uh, between the Roman emperor, or excuse me, the Roman empire and their enemies, and even between the Roman empire and the Jews. Things would heat up and intensify until uh, the year 66 to 70, where it was this all-out war, which ended with the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. It talks about earthquakes and famine. There were plenty of those documented in the first century in the Roman Empire. Verse 9, disciples will be persecuted and handed over to the councils and governors and kings, witnessing to Jesus. Again, if we read the book of Acts, we see this repeatedly happening, a persecution of early believers. Verse 12, disciples will even be betrayed or turned on by their family members. Verse 13, you'll be hated by everyone for your commitment to Christ. And so again, these things happened in the first century. Verse 10, it says the gospel must go out to all nations. That's one where it's like a little more confusing. Because like, we know today, not every nation, every tribe has been reached with the gospel. And so in one sense, that hasn't happened. And and yet, we see language in the New Testament about how the word of God and the gospel has gone out to the nations. It has gone out to all the earth. The New Testament uses that sort of language to talk about the spread of the gospel beyond just the Jewish people. And so, in some sense, we're like, well, at least partially that has begun to be fulfilled or in the mind of the New Testament authors. 
And this all leads up to verse 14, which gets a little more specific. It talks about the abomination that causes desolation. What a phrase. A little confusing. What's he talking about? This is actually a quote from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, where it talked about this shameful, appalling act that would be done in the temple or around the temple that would bring shame to the people of God, that would dishonor God. And this actually happened in 157 BC, previously, King, uh, Greek King Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is saying that something as bad as that or worse is going to happen again. You will see the abomination that causes desolation standing where he should not. Again, I think if we look to the events of the first century in A.D. 70 and what the Roman soldiers did to the temple, came in, destroyed the city, put up their uh, images and their paraphernalia with the, the emperor worship and their kind of Roman standards and made shameful sacrifices and they were hailing their general, Titus, as their supreme leader. And so all these acts in or around the temple that would have brought shame to the Jewish people. That was intended to dishonor their God. Be this shameful act. So that happened in A.D. 70. And the temple was destroyed. Sounds like what Jesus was talking about. Now, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about an event like this uh, happening at the end of history. So I'm not ruling out that something like this could happen again. But I think we can look to the events of A.D. 70 and say, well, at least it started then. Maybe it'll be fulfilled again, but at least fulfilled uh, once here in AD 70. It goes on. When this happens, it'll be a terrible time. You'll have to flee. Verse 17, it'll be hard for nursing mothers and pregnant women. Now, I've never been pregnant. <laughs> so I can't speak from personal experience, but I'd imagine if war was breaking out and your city was being sieged and you had to run, it would be significantly harder if you were pregnant. Pregnant women in the room... Have been pregnant? Is that true? Yeah. Okay. Uh, or if you were a nursing mother, right? That'd be kind of difficult to just book it and go track star out of the city. Um, also, it says if it's in winter, verse 18, this will be a challenging season. It won't be fun. If you wanted to run away, would you do it in summer or winter? Probably summer, spring, when the weather is nice, not when it's cold and the elements are harsh. And so Jesus is saying, pray that it would not take place in winter. And then verse 19, it talks about that this will be this unparalleled time of distress that God in his mercy will cut short for the sake of the elect. And some will look at this and say, well, this, this couldn't have happened in the first century. An unparalleled time of distress? That has to be kind of this like future end times stuff where things are like really bad, worse than they've ever been. But again, as we look at the details of the text, he's pointing to the destruction of the temple. And even Luke 21, which is a parallel passage to Mark 13, same conversation happening. There, Luke adds this significant detail talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, how Jerusalem will be sieged and surrounded. And so at least in Luke, he's saying, no, it's not talking about the end times. It's talking about Jerusalem being destroyed, which, again happened. And there was these kind of first century details, like if you're up on the rooftop, don't uh, come down, just, just leave. People often 
uh, lived or hung out on their rooftop, which was flat in the first century. And so that seems like a detail that's like, okay, this is going to happen in, in their lifetime. Also, here's where it gets tricky. If you look at the parallel account in Matthew, it makes it sound like this uh, uh, unparalleled time of distress will be immediately followed by the return of Jesus. Okay, that's why some people say, okay, this has to be a future thing. So it's like, okay, if Jesus comes back right after this happens, then that couldn't have happened in the first century. Right? So that's where kind of the logic goes. And so do you see kind of the challenge of Jesus? What, a lot of this sounds like the first century, but some of it, like it hasn't happened, so how do we kind of make the most sense of it? Um, and so, again, the, the best way, I think, to piece it together, uh, I think uh, the scholars that put forth this view are kind of onto it, um, that most of these events happened in A.D. 70. Most of it either was partially fulfilled then or fully fulfilled then, of course, not the return of Jesus. But, but the era of history that then follows, the church age, the era of history that we are now living in is the time that is marked by distress and tribulation. And certainly these challenges, these struggles that we read about continue, and we might even face some of them. And that will continue up until Jesus returns. And it's possible that this distress will intensify, will get even more difficult as the return of Jesus draws near. Now again, if you grew up in church, especially a church circle that talked about dispensationalism, and like if you read the books Left Behind, you read those books like in the 90s or early 2000s, okay, then you're kind of like, wait a second. I thought this passage was talking about like the future, the great tribulation that's to come, and like the rapture is going to happen, and the church is going to be spared from all of that. That view is um, problematic for a number of reasons, which we won't go into today. Uh, but again, I think if we look at this text specifically, the details included, it's, it's not talking about just some future distant thing. It's talking about events that actually happened. That makes the most sense of the details. It's something that began primarily in the first century and then streams of it might continue into today. So I hope that that's a comforting truth for you. That you could see Jesus looking his disciples in the eye and saying, I know what's coming. Right? He says, be on your guard. I've, verse 23, I've told you everything beforehand. You're going you're to experience this to his disciples. So be on guard. Be ready. Be faithful to me. And so in the same way, if he knew as the author of history, the king of the world, he knows what's ahead for them in the same way he knows what's ahead for us. We can have confidence that Jesus is not going to be caught off guard or surprised. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that development came to be. No, he knows. And so we can face the future that in our minds, and for us, is uncertain. We can face it with confidence because God knows. Jesus himself knows what's ahead. Now, believe me, I know that probably a number of questions maybe uh, that you'd want to talk through with me. I would really love to talk with you more if this kind of brought some stuff up and you're like, I'm not so sure about that. Would love to talk with you. Really, please let me know. Would love to dialogue about how this passage uh, kind of fits together. But there's more here. Okay, there's more. Jesus is going to shift gears in verse 24. Okay, notice with me. He says, but in those days, following that distress, okay, so after whatever that was exactly that he just talked about, after that, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself, coming in clouds with great 
power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. And so Jesus is saying, but hey guys, you may be worried about this destruction and what's ahead, but I want you to know that I, after that, will return. Okay, I'll come back at some unspecified time after this period I've been talking about. And he uses all this imagery, you notice, about the sun darkening and the moon not giving off light and stars falling. And scholars will look at this and say, man, he's talking, using this cosmic language that is common in apocalyptic literature, where it's talking about the uh, metaphorical, dramatic, widespread political and religious turmoil that will happen, these upheavals that will be brought on as the ages in history shift and as Jesus returns. It's even more interesting that if you look at the the moon and the stars and the the sun, those were all entities that the Romans or the ancient world looked at as, as gods that had some part in controlling the events on earth. And so Jesus is saying they will darken, they will fall because the true king, the only true God of the universe is here and establishing his kingdom forever. And so he's saying, Jesus, he'll come back. Jesus will come back in great power and glory. And look at verse 26. It says, people will see it. They'll see it. Sometimes people today, religious groups, talk about like a secret return of Jesus. Like he came back and he's eating top ramen in someone's basement and like no one heard about it. Like E.T., we're like, where do you, what? No one knows about it? Do you see how... That's not the case. They're like, don't make sure you don't miss it. We're like, you're not going to miss it, okay? When Jesus comes back, you're going to know, okay? You're going to know. He comes in power and glory. Verse 27, he's gathering his people to destroy evil and injustice once for all and establish his kingdom of love and peace and his eternal reign. I mean, this is the end of history as we know it and the beginning of eternity, the return of the king so is not going to show up on page 7 of um, some obscure newspaper. Okay, We're going we're gonna to see it. There would be no way to miss it. So you don't have to stress about that. And in light of this, here's his point. He's talking about these big cosmic things happening, tribulation and distress and the destruction of the temple and his eventual return. So here he says in verse 28, notice, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Verse 30, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay, learn this lesson. You look at the fig tree, its leaves come out, you know that the season is near. So in the same way, when you start to see these things happening in the world, which, again, they've been happening since the first century on, you know that the end is near. These things he's talking about, remember the question that started all this in verse 4? Jesus, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign? And now he's saying, when you see these things, the things I've been talking about for verse 5 to 23, essentially, and and on, you'll, you'll know that the season is near. Now, verse 30 has confused some of us. 
Because it says this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. You'll see them. Again, he's not saying this generation will see the return of Jesus. But he's saying they will see these signs start to happen. Okay? So the generation of the apostles will see all the things in verse 5 to 23 start to happen. And know that the final era of human history, this era that we're still living in today, is upon us. And then he goes on, verse 32, about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So that might sound a little confusing, right? Because he just told us, you're going to see and you're going to know. But no one knows. So it's kind of like, Jesus, what are you, what are you saying here? And he's saying, you'll know the season, are you going to understand that these are the last days, kind of the last era of human history when you start to see these signs? But as we're talking about exactly the return of Jesus and exactly when that'll happen, saying no one knows. You're not going to be able to pin down the date or the exact time. Not even the Son himself, but only the Father knows. Which again, seems clear enough, right? Like, don't go setting dates for the return of Jesus. And yet, don't we see many date setters today? Think of Harold Camping or maybe other names over the years. It's going to be May 2011 or September 2017. And so immediately, when you see someone do that, you know they have no idea what they're talking about. Seriously, when you hear someone say that, go to this text. No one knows. So when you see someone, like, I love you guys, but if you come to me with something like that, like in May 2019, Matt, Jesus, May 21st, 2019, it's happening, I will flick you in the eyeball. I'll just say, stop it. Just stop it. Don't do that. Don't do that. Right? Look, no one knows. No one knows. The, the point is not to, again, hang out in your basement with a strong pot of coffee at all hours of the night and make these charts and figure out exactly when it's going to happen. That's not the point. What's his point? Verse 33. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. Okay, so we all have an assigned task while the master is away. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. In other words, it could be any time of day you don't know. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Verse 33, be on guard, be alert. Verse 34, keep watch. Verse 35, keep watch. Verse 36, don't be sleeping. Verse 37, watch. He's trying to prepare us, the disciples then, and us. And the disciples in any generation to know how to live in the present, to remain faithful, even though some of these challenges might shape our life and our generation, stay the course, trust the Lord, be about his business. Right? There's plenty in this passage that might be confusing that we can maybe disagree on, but here's, if we could just boil it down to like the simplest form that I'd want you to walk away with. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when it'll be. So be ready. We all should be able to agree on that. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when it'll be. So stay awake. Be alert. 
which starts with first believing the gospel, right? Have we put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Trusted in him for the forgiveness of our sins? Been adopted as a child of God? Brought into his household? Given the hope of eternal life? Because if that's that's the case, then we can look forward to the return of Christ with great joy and confidence. Don't have to fear that day because that will be our Lord, our King, our Savior returning to rule and reign, and we will welcome him godly. But if we're here today and we haven't uh, been reconciled to God, and we haven't trusted in Jesus, then we await judgment for our sins. And that day will not be a day of joy, but it'll be a day of sorrow, a day of distress. And so the call is be prepared to meet the Lord, to respond to Jesus and his great love for you. Look at how he's loved you through his death on the cross to bring us forgiveness and reconciliation with him. So the question is, when he comes back, not only will we have trusted in him or not, but what would we want him to find us doing? Wouldn't we want to be about the Lord's business, be worshiping, connecting, growing, going all in his name for his purposes, to be about his business? See, uh, a few months ago, my friend Mark came to visit. He lives in Sacramento, childhood friend, and Amber was busy that day, and so Mark was coming down, and we were going to hang out, and he sent me this thing as he was leaving the house. I didn't know this existed. It's like a little link to a website, and it tracks his movement on the road. Do you know you can do this? Yeah, so he sent me this link, and so I was like, you can watch where he is on the road. I was like, that's kind of cool and creepy at the same time. I don't know. Like, <laughs> we used to be afraid that the government was watching us, and now we're like, here, internet, here's where I am at every moment, you know? Uh, but he did it, and I was like, okay. And so I was like, oh, wow, he, okay, he's just leaving the house. And so I didn't have to wonder when he was going to show up. And I had some things to do that morning, and so I was like, well, I know before he gets here, I want to clean up, want to take care of some work things, want to just be ready for him to arrive so we can just hang out when he gets here. But I was like, I got a little time. I mean, I know when, where he is on the road, so I know when he's going to show up, and so I guess I'll play a video game, I'll make a little snack, I'll take it easy, because look, oh, he's only in Vacaville. Oh, he's still on 80, there's traffic always, so look, he's still pretty far away, he's just in Fairville, all right, and then as he gets closer, it's like, oh, checked it again, oh, okay, I better get to work, right, I better clean up, better take care of my stuff, so that he, he's, and when he gets here, we can hang out and things will be ready, and see, some of us think that way with the Lord. Like, oh, he's, his return, it's far away. The end of my life, I'm not going to meet him for a long time. Or the end of history, that's just so uh, distant. Like, that's, that's not going to happen now. And so I can kind of take it easy. And maybe as I get a little older, I'll start to get serious about the Lord and really make sure I got things dialed in so I can meet the Lord. But Jesus is saying essentially the exact opposite here. He's saying, you don't know when I'm going to show up. You don't have a little tracker on my car that you can pull up on a website showing how close I am and when I'm going to arrive? You don't know. So be ready. Be alert. Be about the master's business so that when he comes, we'll be prepared with joy and gratitude to meet him. And so I don't know how you need to respond to that today, whether it's trusting in Christ for the first time or uh, recommitting your life to him or finding some way to serve him more faithfully. I'll let you work that out with the Lord. But the call is, stay awake. Be ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It uh, challenges us and convicts us. And 
at times is hard to sort through, and yet we believe that it is from you, it is true, it's authoritative. And so, Jesus, would you help us to trust you? Help us to, as you told your disciples so long ago, to be alert, stay awake, be on guard, be about the master's business. Jesus, help us to be a people that is ready and alert and watchful for your glory, Lord, to be about your purposes. And we thank you for how you've loved us. Thank you for the gospel that we don't have to look forward in fear to your return, but because we've been rescued and saved and redeemed, we have great joy in you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.